Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And John, we're three weeks into the NFL season. Patterns are developing. Many have noticed that you're showing a nice profit if you're betting the over every time, as these games have been extremely high scoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you're latching on to a certain team that's consistently been undervalued or overvalued to this point. But I think I have the best money-making scheme of all. Wait for the Atlanta Falcons to take a big lead, then bet their opponent on the in-game money line. It can't fail, right, John? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the Falcons are in the discussion as the most nondescript franchise in the NFL. I mean, you know, the Browns and the Lions have been so inept for so long that, you know, it's a personality. It's not a great one, but it it is a personality. Um, Most other franchises have either great histories or once great, but they've sucked for the last 20 years. Uh, Dolphins, Raiders, Reds football team. um, Or they always sucked (laughs) until they didn't, like the Saints, you know, but it's just something. The Falcons had nothing for almost 50 years until they choked on America's sports uh, biggest stage by blowing that 28 to three lead against the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And now here we are just a few years later. They've done the impossible and blown fourth quarter leads with 98 and 99 percent win probability <laughs> indexes in consecutive weeks. And it's the same coach. Yeah, <laughs> that was impossible. I mean, you know, the previous two chokes, they were too conservative. So against the Bears on Sunday, the offense was too aggressive in throwing the ball in the fourth quarter. Eight straight incompletions by Matt Ryan, who seems like a nice guy, but he must have been a real monster in a previous life. And his coach, too. Uh, you know, all the Falcon stars, including Ryan, insisted that the losses have nothing to do with coaching. Uh, there's a condition that is a name for this, I think, Eric. Uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, but I have to admit, like Charlie Brown, whom I played, a critical acclaim, by the way, in a Charlie Brown Christmas in our ah. fifth grade play. Yeah, I kept I keep thinking this is the time Lucy's going to finally let Charlie kick that damn football, uh, and the Falcons are going to win. Uh, speaking of which, the Falcons need a new kicker this week. So what could possibly go wrong there? <laughs> right? Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> right. I love how you say you played Charlie Brown to critical acclaim in fifth grade. Well, were there were crit- critics were at that play? <laughs> that's a little bit of embellishment there. Okay. But, uh, there was no there was no criticism. So uh, your, your, your parents said you did a good job. So uh, uh, yeah, right. pretty much. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, well, uh, I, I did not make an in-game bet as I wish I had, but I did have the Bears on the money line pregame Sunday, and so uh, that was a nice little miracle for my bankroll. Uh, thank you to Nick Foles for providing me one more moment of happiness. But <laughs> um, and speaking of uh, Nick Foles and his former team, you mocked me a little on Twitter for whining about my Eagles, and uh, I will admit. As as awful as the start of this Eagles season has been, Falcons fans have had it much worse the last several years. Um, yeah, you talked about that they're really nondescript or have been for a while seeking an identity. You know, there are more hopeless fan bases. Certain You mentioned a couple like the, the, the Browns. I think the Jets are maybe the ultimate mm-hmm. example. But as far as a tortured fan base, the, the Falcons... They're moving into that mix from the blown 28-3 lead in the Super Bowl to everything that's happened since. They're now in there with the Vikings and Bills uh, and and others in that discussion of all-time most tortured NFL fan bases. But, uh, you know, if they get a big lead on Green Bay on Monday night and I can get some good plus money on a Packers (laughs) comeback win, I'm pouncing. 
Yeah, and just to clarify, uh, you know, uh, as far as muling about uh, tough losses or tough starts, it's 20 years. After your team wins a championship, there's a 20-year moratorium on being able to mule and whine and all that kind of stuff. So that's, 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 that's fair, but I, I will uh, fall back upon my 25 years from 1983 to 2008 with no championships in, in four sports, basically 100 straight seasons. Uh, that, that, that torture and that pain stays with me, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm prone to complaining a little earlier than I probably should. But yeah, certainly, uh, overall, just looking at the Eagles, not Philadelphia sports as a whole, just yes. looking at the Eagles, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in the window where I shouldn't be complaining about a bad start to a season. Right, that's understandable. <laughs> okay. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 111 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 110 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And we're sure you'll agree that listening to old episodes is a great alternative to watching either of the two remaining presidential debates. <laughs> no, no comment. Um, <laughs> coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by sports gaming industry consultant Lloyd Danzig to cover a variety of topics from Barstool Sportsbook to cashless casinos to the place of artificial intelligence and gambling. But first, it's been kind of a boom and bust week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We've talked about quite a few major mergers and acquisitions on this podcast over the last couple of years, and we got an enormous one on Wednesday morning when Caesars Entertainment announced that it will acquire William Hill in a deal worth some $3.7 billion. The two companies already had a relationship for sports betting, with William Hill running Caesars retail and online sports books and having 80% of the equity. But this goes far beyond that, as the two brands are now one. According to a press release, quote, Caesars believes that the current joint venture structure between Caesars and William Hill in the U.S. needs to be broadened in scope in order to fully maximize the opportunity in the sports betting and gaming sector and provide the best possible customer experience, end quote. The press release also notes that Caesars believes its expanded online gaming and online sports betting businesses could generate between 600 and $700 million in net revenue in fiscal year 2021. With William Hill currently the third biggest sports betting brand nationally behind FanDuel and DraftKings with about 10% market share, the idea is to try to build up that William Hill brand even more in the U.S. John, we've been asking a lot lately whether this operator or that operator can challenge the big two. With the combined power of Caesars and William Hill, can they compete with the DFS giants? And do you have any other thoughts on this merger deal? Yeah, it was just a week ago I mentioned that the Caesars-William Hill combo was kind of uh, confusing to me and not sure what to make of it. And then they go out and uh, marry each other. So uh, <laughs> that's also confusing. I'll mention the deal is not expected to close until the second half of 2021. Yep. So that's going to be after several more states have opened for business. And that's uh, a little bit of an issue, at least. Um, now, Caesars, which until recently was called El Dorado, before it absorbed Caesars and took over its name, which sounds like a horror movie script a little bit, but uh, that's what happened. So it's El Dorado, really, but it ate Caesars and it's named Caesars. And then it combined with William Hill, and it's going to be Caesars, I guess. I don't know. So uh, they do have an exclusive deal with ESPN that makes it the odds provider across ESPN platforms, while DraftKings has the DFS angle on ESPN. Um, that makes me a little more bullish on this new combination, but um, 
you know, I'm not I'm not so convinced that Caesars loyalty club members uh, for casino translated to sports betting. That just hasn't worked that well in New Jersey and other states. Um, but I do think online casino gaming will make a push beyond the current handful of states that it's in in the next few years. And this new company will do really well there. And frankly, that's where the money is. Yep, that's what I've seen speculated, that really it's all a means to an end, the end being online casino, and uh, and, and certainly it makes sense on that front. You, you pointed out when the deal is expected to close, so the impact won't be felt for the next 12 months or so. When it kicks in, it does make some sense. You're combining that Caesars Rewards database, which, as you said, it's maybe it's not all sports gambling customers, but it's, all, it's still a huge database, and you combine that with the William Hill name in sports betting, which... However, the pros who get limited might feel about that name. They're a small minority. Most people see the name William Hill, and it sounds like a classy joint that they know has been operating sports books for a very long time in the UK. All that said, I don't think that William Hill plus Caesars equals anything close to DraftKings or FanDuel. Yeah. You know, th- these are early days. Uh, the sports betting wars of 2020 might look nothing like the hierarchy in 2025, but for now, for the next couple of years, I don't see William Hill turning this into a big three. Well, this could, this could be com- combined again. You know, uh, Barstool's uh, Dave Portnoy is talking about, hey, it's possible that we combine with DraftKings or FanDuel and then we bury the competition, which I don't think they would. But, um, you know, anything's possible. There's, there's, We've been talking about consolidation for over a year and a lot of it has already happened. And here comes another one. Um, but it can get smaller and smaller is possible, though. Eventually you run into some, uh, you know, federal regulation issues if you're the last one standing. Right. Yeah. No, but you're right. Further, further consolidation to come almost certainly. Um, but you know, if, if they all do keep consolidating and we're down to just a few operators, there's always the possibility of new operators, which leads us to our second story. Uh, this is, uh, something we discussed a handful of weeks ago, offshore sports book five dimes and its apparent interest in becoming a legal u.s book on wednesday it was announced that five dimes had reached a 46.8 million dollar settlement with the u.s department of justice following a federal money laundering investigation and five dimes and owner laura varela will not be prosecuted criminally or civilly for any past crimes in theory Five Dimes can now pursue licensure in U.S. states, and it has already incorporated as 5D America's LLC in Delaware. (laughs) That said, as we discussed recently, New Jersey DGE director David Reebuck has been outspoken against offshore books, and there are no guarantees that any state regulator will okay an offshore operator with the shady history of Five Dimes, even if it tries to sever ties with its past operations. Some are wondering if Varela is just getting bad legal advice here as she tries to run the company following the murder in Costa Rica of her husband, Tony Creighton. John, you might not have a whole lot more to say about this after we spoke about it so recently, but how important is what happens from here in terms of determining how other offshore sports books will or will not approach dealing with U.S. regulation or whether they'll continue to cater to American customers going forward? Yeah, well, this time I dug up the Reebok quotes from just over a year ago on this very issue of offshore sports books. Uh, it was a gaming industry event I attended at uh, Monmouth Park, and where I met Lloyd Danzig, our guest this week, ah. by the way, last year. Um, and this is funny because there'd be 
like Google probably has a translate where you turn this into like Indiana nice or Minnesota nice, but this is the Jersey version of <laughs> objecting to offshore sports books. We made a decision in New Jersey a long time ago, Rebuck said. If you engage in taking offshore bets or if you engage with or support companies that take bets outside of the U.S. from American customers with an offshore site, you'll never get licensed in New Jersey. So don't waste your time. You've made your bed in the past and you'll have to live with it for a very long time. <laughs> Not a lot of wiggle room there. Right? No. I don't really see that. <laughs> and that's probably from the you know, still the most, uh, I would say, the most influential gaming regulator in the U.S., uh, and you've got all these newfangled Midwestern states, and many of them start with the letter I for some reason. But, um, yeah, if they're asked by a, a five dimes or really anybody uh, to uh, be approved, the regulators are going to say or at least think, uh, what does New Jersey say about you? Right. Um, so even if one thinks New Jersey is too strict, that's, you know, that's fine. Uh, and even if Rebuck were to be replaced, he was a Governor Christie appointee after all, and uh, the new governor's Democratic. Um, but I think New Jersey's regulatory reputation is impeccable. And changing horses in midstream on that reputation strikes me as unlikely. And if I'm right, then how does five times ever make this work? Uh, but look, we have a widow here who at least now knows where she stands with the federal government. Right. And there's going to be no prosecution for actions taken prior to now. Uh, that's got to be worth something to her. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I would say it's worth uh, $46.8 million to her. Um, but uh, yeah, no, those those quotes from Reebok are, are pretty straightforward. And like you said, not a lot of wiggle room. This is a, a really interesting test case. If Five Dimes does get in, in in some states, which I think you and I both feel it's a strong underdog, but if it did, I would expect other offshores to, cr- to try. Um you know, Varela might have just paid a lot of money and cut off a big stream of present and future money from U.S. customers for no upside other than sort of the peace of mind that you pointed out. Um, that said, I wonder if maybe U.S. regulators will see what Five Dimes has done to this point, you know, barring U.S. customers from betting illegally with them from this point forward and say, hey, maybe the way to kill the offshore market is to bring them all in above board. States get taxes. U.S. customers won't have many options left for betting with unregulated books. I don't know. It's it's something to consider that, you know, if Reebok really wants to kneecap offshore betting, this might be a way to do it by turning all offshore betting into legal regulated betting. I don't know. I haven't thought this theory through very carefully. I'm just kind of spitballing a bit here, but uh, maybe there's something to to that possibility. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting to me also. And I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's not something that's definitely a great idea, but it's something worth considering. Um, it's just that I think we have, you know, currently New Jersey and David Reebok are really pretty set in their ways on this for better or for worse. And so um, it's, it would be difficult to change that. So I think the idea is pretty creative and, and something we're thinking about, but we've got this massive roadblock right now. Right. And I say, even if, even if a Reebok's replaced, um, I don't know if the New Jersey governor wants to be known as the guy who uh, is no longer, you know, almost 50 years of uh, uh, New Jersey being this, uh, you know, uh, leader in, uh, rooting out the mob and corruption and all kinds of other things, very strict and and they got a great reputation in the industry. And to say, yeah, we'll take five dimes, sure, we'll we'll roll the dice, so to speak. I don't <laughs> I don't know if, I don't know if they want to do that. So for for better or for worse, I think it's going to be very difficult for that to happen. Even if it 
is an interesting theory. Yeah. Well, as as an editor, you got uh, you got my gears moving with something you said there. Use the word roadblock. Future headline: the Rebuck Roadblock. Uh, <laughs> nice. we, we'll see if we can use that at some point. Nice. All right. Let's wrap up the news segment with a roundup of the four major U.S. professional team sports leagues and how they're doing or have done with their COVID plans. The NHL season is complete and the NBA is close and both sequestered their players and staff in bubble campuses for two months or so and really had no major COVID issues, although there were some mental health issues with the forced isolation. Uh, Meanwhile, Major League Baseball did not use a bubble at all and seemed to be unraveling as multiple teams were hit with COVID outbreaks early in the season, but they managed to get back on track and almost every team played all 60 games, and now the postseason is underway with a bubble coming after the opening round of the playoffs is complete. Then there's the NFL, which was having success without bubbling, in part because it was doing the most extensive testing imaginable, but the league had its first big hiccup this week when, at last report, five players on the Tennessee Titans tested positive. The Titans played the Vikings last Sunday. The Vikings players have apparently tested clean so far, but the league is watching closely. And the Titans, their practice facility is closed all week, and the team's Sunday game versus the Steelers has been postponed. Initially, it was postponed possibly just a day, but now it has been fully moved off this week's schedule. The NFL might escape this one without a full-on outbreak and just some shuffling of bye weeks. It's it's just one game for now. Not a disaster if that's as far as it goes. Um, then there's college football, which is not part of the four major U.S. professional team sports leagues that I cited at the beginning of this. Uh, but uh, college football is playing games. Suffice to say, all is not going smoothly on the COVID front. Uh, John, what lessons have we learned? And have we advanced enough in our understanding of COVID to say that even without a vaccine, other than late starts for basketball and hockey, the 2021 sports calendar should look pretty normal other than arenas still being empty or almost empty until there's a vaccine? Yeah, well, I talked last week about how great these results have been for us poor, tortured sports fans and (laughs) and just being a human in 2020. And and it's been really helpful, I think, for a lot of us. Um, But think of the players, too. You know, their odds of dying from COVID-19 are infinitesimal, but uh, they could have been sidelined for weeks as a teammate or two might grab the extra playing time and run with it. I mean, pro sports careers are short enough as it is. So and even a a small decrease in lung capacity that us mere mortals wouldn't even notice that could end that career. Yeah. So uh, so I think it's been tremendously uh, it's been great for, you know, 99 point whatever percent of athletes who have been uh, uh, okay with all this. So I think most, if not all the players in all these sports are, are going to be willing to make some sacrifices again in 2021, especially if it's a transition year where, you know, there might be some fans in the stands and there's some sort of vaccine going, some pretty nice paychecks still going out there. I, I think there this this modern athlete, as compared to the athletes I covered back in the day, uh, is much more willing to, they treat their bodies like machines and they'll do what's necessary uh, a the pay's great that's that's a factor but also they just take the their whole uh employment a lot more seriously uh so overall i'm a lot more optimistic on the sports front than i was a few months ago that's for sure exception you kind of mentioned uh, college football mm-hmm. i expect major upheaval there with yeah. one of the the big five where, uh, you know, multiple players on teams that played each other worse than the Titans Vikings where the Vikings seem to be unscathed. Uh, and then that just causes chaos. Uh, it's just, and you know, we've talked before, we're not, we're not making fun of, uh, 
22 year old uh, uh, dumb kids because we were 22 and dumb. <laughs> <ones>. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. You know, the, the whole fan situation is uh, is really interesting. I, I do wonder if the NFL will now clamp down a bit on those teams that have been allowing socially distanced fans in their stadiums now that the league is dealing with its first team outbreak and not that one thing is really connected to the other necessarily, but I just wonder if they'll, if they'll tighten up on that front. Uh, I would expect that until there is a vaccine that is really approved and trusted and a majority of Americans are taking it indoor sports like NBA and NHL, are likely to start their seasons without fans. That would be my guess. Um, but as far as being able to play games in 2021 without bubbling, if you have strict guidelines that the players can be convinced to follow and you have strict daily testing, um, you know, like the NFL, despite this one hiccup, is mostly showing that, yeah, you'll have the occasional positive test, but you can get through your season, he says, knocking wood. Um, you know, but the, the NFL, though, does have the, the luxury of a week between games. Other leagues would have to postpone numerous games, as MLB did when a team has an outbreak. But the NHL crowned a champ. Clearly, the NBA is going to crown a champ. Major League Baseball is a huge favorite at this point to crown a champ. I see no reason to be pessimistic about the NFL right now, um, although the Super Bowl getting pushed back by a couple of weeks, that's certainly in play. But bottom line for sports bettors and sports books, I don't think we'll have to worry much about voids and refunds for championship bets. Win totals, maybe. Um, but these leagues are seeing their seasons through and I think it will get smoother in 2021. Um, and uh, I'm not going to make this political. I'll just quickly say I think the November election results will impact how much smoother it gets in 2021. And uh, to quote Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, well, I will say there's one underrated aspect. You know, after 9-11, uh, Super Bowl was going to be played in uh, New Orleans in 2002. And there was – so they had to back up the schedule. And that ran into a major car dealer convention, you know, tens of thousands of uh, convention people. Uh, and so that was very difficult to square. Hmm. But this year, unfortunately, Tampa doesn't have, I'm sure, a million events scheduled for February right. as they normally would. So – I would not be shocked if the NFL, if it had to, could move the Super Bowl back even, say, two weeks in later February. Um, and, of course, there's been talk for many years of making Super Bowl on President's Day weekend anyway. So it's a holiday weekend. Um, and this might actually spur that. So mm. I think the NFL has more wiggle room than people think. They clearly they can juggle the buys for the Steelers and, and that'll that'll work uh, or Titans, rather. Right. And that'll work. But um, I think that uh, they have. Uh, sort of a fail safe on this. Plus you don't have many fans. That say, so it's not like, Oh, all these fans are inconvenienced because the game was moved. They're not going to the game anyway. They're inconvenienced to watch, but they, they can handle that. So uh, I think the NFL has plenty of wiggle room. So I, th I think they'll get through unscathed, even if they have to back up the season a week or two. Yeah. I mean, this, I spoke to someone, I'm now blanking on who it was for one of the articles I wrote a few weeks ago, um, who said that the, you know, that from what they're hearing, the NFL has basically blocked off the entire month of February to as possible uh, possible Super Bowl dates that they're willing to you to back it up any time during that month if they have to. And they've made some contingency plans. I mean, from a sports betting industry perspective, despite what's going on in the NFL this week, clearly the worst is behind us, like the long shutdown without major sports. Now that we have better testing, or at least the rich sports leagues have better testing, and we have a better understanding of COVID than we did in the spring, I don't think we have to worry about another long shutdown. 
I guess one thing to be concerned with just from a sports calendar perspective is depending on how late NBA and NHL start, it's possible we'll have a little dead time in February or March next year. But I, I doubt that they'll start that late. I think that both will be up and running by then. But it, it, it's possible we could have a, a little gap in our calendars, uh, you know, after the Super Bowl. Yeah, I'm not worried about that. We'll be, we'll be okay. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. Joining us now on the podcast is someone I could describe in any number of ways. I could tell you he's the founder and CEO of the sports gaming business and investment consultancy Sharp Alpha Advisors. I could tell you he's the chairman and founder of the nonprofit Iced AI. I could tell you he's an occasional contributing writer to our sister site, Sports Handle. But it might be simplest to tell you he's just a really smart guy when it comes to understanding the sports betting industry. And as proof of his intelligence, he's one of the most devoted listeners to Gamble On. Anyone who listens to this podcast every week is, by definition, a smart person. Lloyd Danzig, welcome back to Gamble On. It's great to have you with us again. Thank you very much, guys. I, I do appreciate, you know, coming back on. The last time we spoke was specifically in the interesting context of the Michael Schwimmer, Jambos Picks fiasco, perhaps for lack of a better sense. Um, I did just want to quickly mention, you guys have both sure. put out so much awesome content since we've last spoke, which feels like forever ago. It was a while ago. But John, in particular, the, the stuff that you were adding on Twitter during the last dance and when that was airing, that was such a cool, unique, really rare sort of opportunity to get a, a side of what otherwise is like mega national superstar story. And I just had to tell you, I so enjoyed that. I shared it with my dad. It was so cool to get your perspective. So I really did appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Lloyd. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I got a lot of feedback in a similar vein, and I appreciate all of it. And I'm surprised. I mean, I, I was doing those games with about – 35 to 40 other New York, New Jersey writers in that era. And I seem to be the only one who was sort of live tweeting it like that. I, I think every, every, every one of them should have been, that's still around anyway, um, should have been doing it. But I, so I, I don't know why everyone didn't do it, but uh, you know, I was happy and uh, uh, the audience was too. So it's nice. Fair enough. See, John, I told you he's a smart guy with good taste. Listen, <laughs> exactly. comes right out kissing your butt. <laughs> Um, so many of our interviews are, are focused on a single subject, uh, but with you, Lloyd, we can bounce around any number of topics related to the sports betting business. And I want to start with something topical that I saw slash heard you talking about on an appearance elsewhere, and that's Barstool Sportsbook. Some people think Barstool could eventually stand shoulder to shoulder with FanDuel and DraftKings. Some think it'll fall short of that, but still be a solid number three. And some think it's basically a gimmick sports book. And when the buzz dies down, it'll fall to the middle of the pack. What's your prediction for how well Barstool Sportsbook will do nationally? Sure. So first, I think, you know, uh, before we make it a foregone conclusion that Barstool slash Penn's utmost uh, sort of accomplishment would put them at a almost guaranteed number three. Let's not forget that Roar Digital, the uh, joint venture between GVC and MGM, although they might not feel like they have quite the same brand presence, they've committed to spending $450 million on that venture and obviously bring with that a ton of expertise and regulatory experience and all that. And we know how much marketing spend and promotions, you know, work and, and have a role in this industry. So I would certainly not count out and, and might actually expect unless something 
unforeseen happens that that Roar Digital, that maybe it's a bet MGM brand. I have no idea what the brand will be, but whatever the output of that 450 million in spend with that much expertise behind it is, I would think that they are also a competitor, if not maybe even a more likely candidate for this guaranteed number three. Hmm. All of that aside, talking about Barca. So everyone has kind of heard these headline stats. Uh, they had 24,000 registrations in Pennsylvania in four days, 63,000 uh, total downloads in, I think, the first weekend. A stat that I kind of like just because of the way it sounds is that three, uh, the three most downloaded days that any sports betting apps have ever had were all the Barstool app those three days of that weekend. I think it was Saturday, then Sunday, then Friday. Uh, they also had, you know, some monetary numbers that were great. There was the 11 million in handle, the $243 average deposit that that people, you know, were happy about because some worried that the barstool audience would be, you know, have have less money to spend. I've heard others say that their only way they got to that 243 number was by offering some really nice promotions to people who made some, you know, high 10k and above deposits. All of that aside, I, I think the way I would look at it is. First of all, people are right when they say that the download numbers themselves are not really apples to apples. There's nothing to compare it to, not only because of the times during which FanDuel and DraftKings rolled out, but because it's a single state, because, you know, a million reasons. Mm -hmm. I also don't think it's that big of a deal because no one doubted that Barstool would be able to create a lot of hype on their first weekend. So, you know, it's great to see that they actually achieved it, but I don't think that number is, is quite as important. What I was looking for, and what I think a lot of people were looking for, is first of all, you know, they hired a team of 65 engineers and didn't get the app ready for week one of NFL season. And some people were saying, what does that mean? It does, is that a harbinger that something, you know, got messed up and it's not going to go well? Or is the app going to crash for everybody? Are the limits going to be $10? Is, is it going to be 30 cent lines? And none of those problems really, you know, were the case. People reported a very intuitive UI, a very easy way to navigate. Uh, and specifically, what people were interested in, why Goldman Sachs said the Barstool Sportsbook was worth $4.5 billion before it even was created, is the thought, we all know this is a customer acquisition, really gold rush and driven industry. The thought is maybe Barstool can acquire and retain and drive betting handle in more cheap or efficient ways because of their loyalty. And they've shown in a couple of ways, really intelligently, that they seem to be doing that. First of all, they recognize that people like doing, you know, long shot parlays. And so their quick parlay chooser uh, has, has really worked and has really driven a lot. Perhaps more importantly, the whole bet with bar stool, leveraging the personalities that they use. 22% of the handle was on bar stool recommended bets. And not only are these arbitrarily recommended bets, they are socially intertwined with the Barstool community. So when Amir Garrett said that he himself was a bad mother effer before throwing, you know, a nasty slider, and then Dave Portnoy said, ah, that guy is soft, they created the Amir Garrett soft serve prop, which gave really good odds on Barstool fans who wanted to bet against Amir Garrett. I think it was striking anyone out in the remaining three games. They have what they call the overs club, which is during designated times, if you wager $100 on an over of a game and win, you get sent an overs club barstool jacket and you get membership into this club. And these are things that are really seeming to resonate with people and are commensurate with sort of how this generation of fans and 
digital users, does things in the other parts of their life, driven by influencers, driven by social dynamics and all that. So my thoughts is that I, I think they did a great job, uh, you know, in terms of the things that people were wondering about as relates to the engineering and the UI and leveraging their personalities. Uh, I would say that I think we're now at a point where it sort of is their opportunity to lose. Uh, in their recent investor presentation, they said if they convert just 6% of the Barstool and Penn Gaming My Choice, which is their, their club audience, if they convert just 6% of that, that'll get them to 13% market share, which is you know all they can sort of hope and dream of. And so I think what that leaves us with is what everyone knows, which is sort of the uh, controversy-driven overhang that always involves Barstool. You know, for example, it seems like Dave Portnoy is talking about placing $10,000 bets at the sports book at which he is a key employee, uh, which pretty much certainly would not be kosher. And then if he was lying about it, that probably also wouldn't be the best. And all the other, you know, things that, that can get rolled up in that. So I think that certainly is an overhang and, and a threat, but I'd say that they are on the right path. They, they hit the things well, and, and certainly people are turning heads and saying, oh, wow, we have to leverage our personalities. And that's why points bet, by the way, they now have a Devin Hester prop every Sunday, which is, will someone run a kickback for a touchdown? Because they have a partnership with Devin Hester. And maybe tomorrow, DraftKings will sign a deal with Kevin Hart and have the Kevin Hart, you know, parlay of the day. But I, I think people are taking notice. And, and I think that this certainly means Barstool is a force to be reckoned with. One other quick caveat is this was a one-state rollout. They plan to roll out in all of the other states in which they gained market access through Penn. Scaling technology from a small user base to a large is a challenge that a lot of people have struggled with. They do have Camby and Penn Gaming helping them with it. It's not just Barstool, but I'd say maybe that's another thing in the future. But yeah, I think generally very positive uh, reception. Okay. All right, we promised we'd, uh, we'd switch topics around on you. So let me throw something else at you. Uh, uh, cashless casino floors. Um, a lot of talk about that uh, even before COVID-19 and frankly even more now. Uh, millennials and the generation behind them, uh, obviously they don't, they're not too fond of cash anyway. So, you know, first is it inevitable? Second, is it coming soon? And third, is there any real downside to it for you know, either for the consumer or the operator? Yeah, uh, I think it's hard to see how it would not be inevitable. Um, COVID certainly has accelerated most of the trends that were in play. Generally, things follow a path of least resistance, and this is a convenience play, even if there are other things surrounding it. And so one would just imagine that if you look at all the trends, and then you multiply them by the desire to have a post-COVID touchless society, uh, that, that it would seem that sort of cashless gaming would, would be on the way. And, and also, you know, in this whole, when you think about the legal and business battles that go on between brick and mortar casino, lo casino locations who don't want the spread of online, if I was a casino operator, I'd say, hey, what's the difference between there being cashless gaming at my tables and people sitting on their own couch betting online in a cashless way? It's already not fair to me that you're taking away my business by letting people do that. Don't make it so much easier to bet on someone's couch than it is in, in my casino. So most likely, I think it's, it's probably inevitable. As and John also said, you know, it's, it's what people are doing. It's what consumers seem to want. Uh, how soon will it be here? You know, there are other things that are being considered that are sort of parallel to this. Especially in Europe, you go to some casinos and chips are now moving to a digital format where you go to the blackjack table, you give them their, your cash, 
and you have a little screen in front of you in which a digital chip stack appears and you kind of bet with a touch screen it gives them more control they can you know track that more and and, and there's all these other things and let's also remember and i know you guys had a guest i think two or three episodes ago who was discussing this some parts of casinos are in a way cashless chips certainly are a convenient measure that remove the mental feeling of parting with your cash as are sort of the ticket in ticket out systems that that most slots you know and video terminals use uh i think you know the the question about the the downside and does the downside exceed the upside is, is a really interesting one and i see i sort of see it it's not this well delineated but i'm going to separate it into two kind of issues for, for the sake of this so one potential downside is that the convenience that they're promising is actually a way to get people hooked on gambling faster or to lose more money than they, than they otherwise would. I don't think there's a single reasonable person who has ever been in a casino who can say that cashless gaming doesn't at least make it a little easier to lose more money. We've all been at a casino at a time where at least we didn't want to get up because we were too tired to walk to the ATM once, and maybe it was only for 100 bucks. but, but it, it just is ridiculous to suppose that that wouldn't happen. Now, there's a bunch of counters to that. First of all, if you're a responsible, sober-minded, uh, libertarian-leaning adult, you want to spend your money how you want, and convenience is only a good thing. So in that way, certainly that's a plus. They also talk about, obviously, post-COVID, the, the physical safety of removing cash. And then you get what is an argument that is seen all through the sort of regulated sports betting world, which is, hey, if it's digital, we can track it. And if we can track it, we can identify irresponsible gaming behavior. We can identify money laundering, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that those are maybe, I don't think those are unfair arguments, but the way I think about it is, I think pretty clearly the profit maximizing percentage of any casino company's revenue that should come from problem gamblers over the long term is 0%. Very clearly over the long term, forget about social and ethical things, just in the costs of PR fiascos and, and how that impacts stock prices and all that, it seems pretty clear to me that you want none of your revenues to come from problem gamblers. There are so many people who enjoy the entertainment side that there's more than enough sort of cash to go around. And so with that, I think you'll start to see the operators who see things in that way and so are generally, whether sports betting, casino or otherwise, are truly trying to be consumer protective and pro-consumer, and then the ones that are not at all. And to me, I care more about, you know, which casino is actually trying to help customers and consumers versus which is not, than, you know, whether or not they use cashless gaming. Perhaps another way to say that is, I'd rather game with a responsible business that uses cashless gaming than an irresponsible one that doesn't, particularly because decisions about what constitutes irresponsible and responsible gaming should really be made on a more personal level and, and all that stuff. And so I think you could go back and forth and the fact that it's inevitable just means that more important and uh, restrictive or at least substantive controls need to be available. There need to be better ways to make sure that individual people don't lose or act in ways that are irresponsible in their personal context. But there's a second point, uh, and you guys touched upon this in your other in your episode, which is that tracking all this information about people is a sort of degradation of privacy. It allows for targeted advertising. Specifically, it allows for targeted advertising that's related to gambling behavior, which can be addictive. And I agreed with a lot of the stuff your guests said on the last 
uh, on that, on that, uh, the payment solutions one. But the thing that I disagreed with, or at least very much thought was an inaccurate characterization, was he made a comment to the effect of, well, look, in the social media space, people are very willingly giving out their information in exchange for the value of the platform, service, et cetera. And I think that, and then he kind of bases the rest of the argument on that. He says, well, if people are willing to do that there, they would be willing to do it here. And if they're willing to do it here, da -da -da, and kind of yada, yada, yada to pull from the, the Seinfeld <laughs> vernacular. But the problem with that is, it's not that the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises, it's that the premise is flawed. In fact, the whole problem with social media and if you, you know, the social dilemma is on Netflix now and everyone's talking about it. The fact is that people are not wittingly or knowingly understanding how much of their own private data they are giving up and what they are getting in return. And an example that is given is that, you know, 700 million Facebook users only have Facebook because the company made a deal with cell phone carriers in third world countries to subsidize the production of cell phones as long as Facebook was preloaded as the only internet browser. That is certainly not a you know, willing participant in a value exchange of private data for free services. And very clearly people are outmatched by the algorithmic nature of advertising and data mining and things like that. So I very much think it is a perfectly valid concern to say that people do not want their activities tracked in this way and I would not at all let it be just a foregone conclusion that, oh, people have social media accounts, therefore they are willing to have their blackjack activity tracked on a detailed level. And so my point on this would be, again, I think the cashless gaming is inevitable, but I would very much desire there to be some opt-out non-track mechanism. You know, there should be a way that someone can go into a casino and not have a player's card not have a whatever else, not have a unique ID generated that's allegedly de-anonymized or whatever. Uh, there needs to be a sort of opt-out uh, from this is my, I think, main thought. One thing I'd sort of uh, push back on a little bit there is uh, you mentioned early on how casinos uh, should want to have their customer base not include any problem gamblers. And I would just, I wonder what you think of the idea that there is a gray area for some gamblers of whether they qualify. Like th that guy who is not addicted to gambling, but who you get a few drinks in him, he goes over the limit he had planned to spend. He wakes up in the morning with some regrets. He's tilting it off at the table a little bit, but it's not excessive. You know, I would just say, do, do the casinos still want those sort of customers and do they qualify as problem gamblers and so forth? Yes, so I think it's I, not quite as cut and dried. I, I would agree with you. And I think that we could actually get into a whole interesting <laughs> debate about what is the definition of problem gambling. And that would be the one that we would never adjudicate. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I definitely, that is a totally fair point. I, I agree hundred percent. Okay. Um, so uh, continuing our bouncing from subject to subject, <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned something interesting recently when we were trading DMs about how 76% of sports bettors engage in ways that are not what we think of as formal sports betting. They make bets with friends, they participate in office pools, they play in fantasy leagues. Some of us are in it for the money or, or the challenge of beating the book, but others are in it for the social aspects. 
uh, and and this really connects with what you were saying uh, about Barstool and how they're um, sort of bringing a bit of a social element to it with their those Barstool personalities. Is that something that the legal sports books should be working day and night to figure out how to make traditional sports betting more social? And, and do you, Lloyd, have any ideas on how they can do that? Yeah, I think the specific way you word that question is actually really interesting. But before I answer, by the way, it was of NFL betters, uh, not of all sports ah, betters, okay. just to clarify. But right. even on that point, let me step back, use this as a chance to do a quick uh, public service announcement about these statistics, the, the surveys that produce them, how they should be interpreted, and, and why and when we should be skeptical. Because actually, this survey, which came from the American Gaming Association, gives us a great insight into how, first of all, some people make some miscalculations accidentally. And also, again, it, it's good to understand. So the way this stuff usually works is that a, a company that is, you know, professional at market research, and maybe the AGA has their own or they outsource it, they find a sampling of people that they believe to be representative of the whole population. You can't ask everybody questions. You can only ask some. You ask these people the questions, you take the frequencies of each of the answers, and then you say, okay, since I had a big enough sample size, I can extrapolate that out to the rest of the population. Now, obviously, this can become problematic if you have some bias in your sampling whereby your sample is not representative. For example, if you did a sports betting poll only in a Las Vegas sports book, it would probably not give you answers that are indicative of the whole U.S. population, but just a specific subset. Uh, so, you know, I, generally the AGA is a highly reputable or organization, and so one of the things that is involved in being a reputable purveyor of statistics is that you know how to sample from groups that are representative of the population. Otherwise, the work you do is, is pretty useless. Uh, and so what happened here is they gave people uh, who identified already as NFL betters an option to say, which of the following ways do you play sports bets? The first option was through legal or illegal online platforms. Second option was through physical retail sports books. The third option was casually through office pools, fantasy pools, box pools, things like that. And the fourth option was to bet casually with friends, family, et cetera. Now, you can choose more than one of these. I'm sure most people who listen to this show are probably in all four buckets. I know I definitely <laughs> am. And so it's important to remember that this is something you can choose multiple of. Uh, I would tell people, this is from the AGA survey they released on September 9th. I believe I noticed a slight mistake. What I think they did is they took the percentages of adults that will do certain things, and they went to multiply that by the U.S. population, but they accidentally did it by the over 18 population instead of the over 21 population. <laughs> so what you see in this survey is 34% parentheses, 11.3 million betters. Uh, I'm going to just refer to the percentages because I'm going to assume that they're correct and just made a slight arithmetic error and didn't mean to do that in the multiplication. So with all that said, what we're focused on here is those third and fourth categories. What percentage of NFL betters, regardless of what else they do, are still placing bets through non-sports books? And the, the total of those two, it was 26% of NFL betters are betting through fantasy pools and box pools. And that was down from 31%, but it's, it's 26 now from last year. The other one, friends, family, et cetera, that is 50% of NFL betters, down again for about 5%. So that's how you get the 76%. The 26% of people who said we bet in pools and boxes and fantasy things, 50% who say we do with, with friends, family, and coworkers. And perhaps that will continue to trend downward a little bit. There's more legal options that are growing. 
Many people have reported that the reason they don't bet legally is because they don't even know that it's legal in their state. And so you'll continue to see some of these numbers tick down. But let's just even say in the most generous situation that 50% of NFL bettors are still going to be placing bets in other places. I think unquestionably and incontrovertibly at this point, the social dynamic is very, very important. You look at these polls that ask people why they sign up for sports books and no option is ever, which sports book do my friends use? And that's not because the people making the polls are dumb. It's because that's just not an option that is really relevant. And yet in every other industry, every other service you sign up for, that is heavily influenced by your friends and family. And we know that our betting activity, what we bet on is so related to where we are, who we're with, what we're going to be doing, uh, and, and all of those sort of things. And one of the ways I like to describe it to people who for some reason think that there's not a lot of room for innovation in the sports betting space is I say, when I started playing fantasy baseball in 2001, season-long fantasy was the only type that existed. But we didn't call it season-long fantasy because there were no other varieties. And so the qualification was not needed. And so at the time, a fantasy sports analyst projecting the size of the future market would have been toggling with all these assumptions to figure out how much people are going to bet and wouldn't have even included daily fantasy sports. And I think similarly, when you see the projections of gross gaming revenue, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, all these ones that they put out, those are great linear extrapolations of if we keep doing what we're doing now, but grow it, what will it look like? But I don't think they include the unknown you know, DFS analog in this sort of extended metaphor here. And I think, you know, who knows what that will be composed of. Maybe there needs to be a red zone channel based on my own fantasy team and sports bets. Maybe that will be, you know, the hot premium product of next year, but social functionality unquestionably, whether that's ways to facilitate people watching games that they've bet on together, whether it's to facilitate people sharing betting information, betting with one another, peer to peer betting, and, you know, it expands. You look at other trends like uh, in connected health. Pelotons do so well because of this gamified competitive component. And whether people formally start, you know, betting on their own Peloton races through some DraftKings app that enables it, I don't know. But you can see this whole trend in gamified social experiences where the primary benefits are non-economic. And what I'd add to that is I don't, know how good people are at reporting their own intuitions or motivations for things but if somehow you could scan the brain of most sports bettors in the u.s excluding the ones who are actually profitable most of the people who bet online and deposit in regulated sports books if they were being honest would tell you that they never plan to withdraw that money they want to make it last for as long as possible they want to see the number go as high as possible they want to hit the big mega parlay so they can post the screenshot to barstool and have them retweet it but they never actually have an expectation of withdrawing. And, and it's not because that's economically irrational. It's because the, the utility derived is from the extra sweat, the adrenaline rush you get, the enjoyment, the bragging rights, the socialness, all that. So your question, though, was not do I think uh, social functionality is important. It's do I think that sportsbook operators should be working night and day? And that is actually a more complicated question. You'd think I'd say, well, obviously, yes, after all the stuff I just said. The reason it's complicated is because DraftKings, FanDuel, who are two of the biggest businesses, they have the most resources of anyone. Anything I say to them will definitely apply to the smaller guys. 
they, if you look at their financials, right, they are spending way more on marketing and sales and SGNA than, than they bring in in revenue. DraftKings is toggling, maybe working on a, a, an SB tech uh, operation in Ireland. They're considering other international expansions. They want to do betting on more than just sports. They're fighting a lawsuit with the IRS. They're considering new states to go into. They have lobbyists to pay. They have new promotions to offer. If you're DraftKings, you have a lot of mega, big, high-impact things on the docket. And if you have $1.2 billion in cash and no debt on your balance sheet, you might just say, I'm going to focus elsewhere. There's a ton of Harvard MBAs and Wharton guys that are starting some startups that are in this space. I'll just wait two years, give them what's life-changing money for them, but a rounding error for me, and wait till they've already proven it out tested the functionality, built up the user base, and I can just acquire it right away. So I don't know the answer to the second part of, of whether they should be focusing. Uh, it's definitely going to be a game changer. But, uh, you know, the innovator's dilemma in the space makes it so that it's hard for some of the innovation to come organically in-house. All right. Uh, yeah, Lloyd, for our last question, uh, you deal in uh, two two word phrases that are interesting to me because all four of the words are very familiar to people and they have no problem with it. But when you put them each together in pairs, uh, it sort of terrifies people. Uh, one is uh, artificial intelligence and then the other is machine learning. Um, so if you can kind of briefly demystify exactly what the heck those terms mean and then what do they have to do with gambling obviously is the main yeah main point sure let, let me let me do that quickly so uh artificial intelligence in the context that it, it is referred to today is really best described as processing according to pre-programmed rules in ways that mimic human abilities and all that means is you follow a set of rules to take some input that leads to some output and that the whole process resembles the human process. So for example, when you speak into your phone and it translates that into a text to send, that's, pro that's only using pre-programmed rules. It recognizes certain sound waves and knows how to convert those to characters on your screen. But because that mimics the human process of hearing and like listening, we call that artificial intelligence. Now, I'd use that definition and some people say, wait, I, I thought AI was like Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator. What you just described kind of sounds very lame compared to sort of a killer robot apocalypse. And that is, is very accurate. And, and what it misses is that what we have today and what we're very good at is what is called artificial narrow intelligence, which is things that are programmed to do only one specific thing really, really well. And that compares to the Terminator type of AI, which is artificial general intelligence, which is the type of AI that can interact with the world as humans do in all ways. So we are nowhere necessarily close to that second one. Some people think it will never happen. It's a topic of big debate. What we have now is the first type, narrow AI. Machine learning is simply a subtype of artificial intelligence that builds on a few more things that help the algorithm become adaptive. And all that means, for lack of a better example, is you have, uh, you know, maybe use Gmail or any other email client that comes preloaded with a certain spam classifier. And it has specific rules, pre-processed, pre-programmed rules that tell it how to divert things to spam and not. But as you tell it that certain messages were spam or not spam, it gets better at learning kind of from you. And so a better way to think about all of this, if you didn't listen or blacked out during the last 30 seconds of what I just said is, what we have right now, when anyone talks about AI or machine learning, they are talking about 
a cutting edge superior form of pattern recognition. Looking at datas, recognizing patterns and making predictions. And so when you ask the question of where does that enter into sports betting, the answer is everywhere. Of course, the way odds are generated, the way lines are made is by looking at patterns in past games and predicting the outcome. The way risk management done, is done is by looking at what bets are coming in, detecting patterns in regards to the last time similar betting activity happened, what line changes did we make and what resulted. When you think of things like detecting fraud, money laundering, uh, those are all pattern recognition. Uh, and when you think about some of the things you see in other places, the way Netflix recommends you uh, movies to watch, if DraftKings wants to recommend you bets to make, they will again use pattern recognition. So I think the best way to just think about it is replace AI and machine learning in your head with the thought of pattern recognition on steroids. And that is almost certainly the way uh, that it is being applied. All right, I actually understand that, so that's good. You, you demystified it. You have, you have succeeded. That was my goal. <laughs> well, great stuff. It is always uh, good talking to you, Lloyd. I always learn a few things. And, uh, and by the way, uh, I think uh, I, I want in on your multi-million dollar idea for a Red Zone channel connected to my uh, DFS and fantasy lineups. We'll, we'll discuss that. that more offline. Take but it I, offline. I think you got something there. All right. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for, for coming on. I, I think the, the dream of having you and Schwimmer on the same time uh, may, may be dead, but hopefully we can at least have you back on again soon. Hey, if Michael Schwimmer happens to be listening to this podcast, I still offer an open invitation to discuss the <laughs> Jambos fiasco and any misunderstandings that I may have made along the way. I would be happy for him to enlighten me as to, you know, the, the sports betting genius that he is. So that's an open invitation anytime. All right. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Lloyd. Take it easy, right, Thanks, Lloyd. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to the Fast Five shortly, but first, let's update our shared bankroll, starting with our two Major League Baseball season-long win totals bets that came in. We had the Pirates under 25 and a half wins. They had the worst record in the league at 19 and 41. So we won $100 there. Unfortunately, the theory that the Giants would fall out of the race early and pack it in didn't pan out. We had them under 25 and a half as well at a steep minus 165 price. They went 29 and 31. So we lost $165 on that. As far as new bets, John had the Dallas Stars on the money line in game four. They lost an overtime heartbreaker, so that's a loss of 100 bucks. However, John balanced that out with a $100 win on Georgia football. He got him at minus 26 and needed every point as they overcame a slow start to win by 27. Uh, my Thursday night football player props are off to a bad start. Mike Gesicki did not go over 49 and a half yards. He had just one catch for 15 yards. It was a touchdown, but that doesn't help us. So we lost $112 on that. And my Charlo boxing bets were a success overall, as Jamal won as a minus 154 favorite to earn us $100, but his fight went the distance, so our long shot KO Charlay at plus 850 missed, <laughs> and we lost 30 bucks on that. Add it all up, and we lost $107 for the week, meaning after two plus years of doing this, our bankroll is plus 20 bucks. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, we also have $655 on hold in futures bets. So that leaves us with $9,365 available to bet with. 
And I'm up first this week. Uh, you'll recall, John, my successful three-team six-point teaser a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> this week, something similar, a three-team ten-point teaser, which obviously gets us a much lower payout. But uh, the way the lines fell this week, we need a few more points to feel safe. So here we go. Rams, they're minus 12 and a half, hosting the pathetic Giants' sons, Saquon Barkley. We move that 10 points to Rams minus two and a half. The Ravens, hungry off their first loss of the season, are minus 13 on the road in Washington, but it's barely a road game. And uh, the football team is without Chase Young. We move that to Ravens minus three. And then for the third one, I'm taking a big underdog instead of a big favorite. The Chargers are plus seven at Tampa Bay. The Bucks are without Chris Godwin, and the Chargers have kept every game close. They won by three, lost by three, lost by five. We move them all the way to plus 17 at Tampa. The talent gap between these teams isn't that big. I think this gives us enough cushion. So the whole thing comes out to minus 157 odds. So we're betting $157 to win 100. Rams minus two and a half, Ravens minus three, and Chargers plus 17. Okay. Uh, before my first pick, I, I have to pay homage to the outrageousness of that Georgia cover. <laughs> sure. That's the most ridiculous one of my entire betting life, long life. Um, <laughs> thanks to 98 yards worth of first half penalties. 98 yards of first half penalties. Uh, Georgia trails 7-5 at halftime. So I'm 28 points in the hole with 30 minutes to play. Make it 31 with an early third quarter field goal by Arkansas. <laughs> then Georgia, Georgia goes ahead. 13-10, 20-10, 27-10, 34-10. Now there's two minutes left, third and 18, and Georgia gets 16 yards. Uh, oh, well. Wait, here comes a 38-yard field goal attempt <laughs> to make the boosters and betters like me and them uh, on the Georgia side happy, and it's good. <laughs> wow. And it's a cover. You know, after a win like that, that's not a COVID-19 mask you're wearing as you walk to the cage to cash. It's like a wild, wild west bandana covering you as you steal money from the poor <laughs> bastards who at Arkansas plus 26. Oh, man. That is a bad, bad bad beat yeah anyway so uh yeah let's go back to college then i'll, I'll try it again um virginia tech minus 10 and a half over duke uh tech was missing about two dozen players last week for uh positive tests including their quarterback due to, to the covid um so i think a team like that that makes it work anyway and then gets most of those you know missing back a week later i, I like that combination and plus duke stinks so what what are we betting there was that the standard uh, yeah, 110 100, to win 100 yeah, okay yeah, exactly, sir. all right um so my next bet, I'm going to contradict last week's guest, Justin Van Zuden here. He said he wouldn't touch the L.A. Dodgers at just plus 350 to win the World Series. But I saw a bunch of simulations and calculations had the Dodgers at about 30% to win it all before the playoffs started. So plus 350 was actually good value, if you believe in that 30% number. But I was hesitant because of the craziness of these three-game opening series. So I wanted to wait for the Dodgers to win game one, and if their price didn't change too drastically, bet them now. Uh, it did change drastically at DraftKings, down to plus 275, and at FanDuel, down to plus 280, but you got to shop around. And at FoxBet, they only slipped from plus 350 to plus 320. Now that they're up 1-0 on the Brewers, one of their theoretically dangerous future opponents, San Diego, is without a key pitcher. The Marlins might bounce the Cubs. Things are lining up nicely, and the Dodgers are just really stacked. So let's bet $50 to win 160 on L.A. to win the World Series. 
All right. We'll hope for that one. Um, meanwhile, there's more bad golf this week, so I'm going to pass again on that. Um, okay. I really want to dance on the Miami Heat grave, but um, 100 to win $6 on DraftKings for the Lakers. <laughs> I, I, can't, no, I, can't, no. I can't do it. I wouldn't, I no. wouldn't let you. <laughs> no. So give me the Lakers minus eight versus the banged up Heat in game two, 110 to win 100. Okay. Um, it's funny. I actually was thinking about the other side of that for my second bet. Mm-hmm. I was not, not that I think the heat are going to storm back and win the series or even win the game. But I looked at those points and I was kind of like, yeah, maybe the heat show a little more life in game two, but uh, I haven't actually placed a bet on it and I didn't hear on the podcast. So, uh, so I'll root for the Lakers side now. There we go. Uh, and we wrap things up with the fast five where, well, I'm consistent. I got to say that for myself. I went two and three for the third week in a row, bringing my record to a cringeworthy six and nine. And I finally brought you down to my level, John. You went two and three. Also, you now have the reverse of my record on the season. You're nine and six. Uh, We both won with the Packers and lost with the Titans and went one and two. Otherwise, we're both hoping to do better this week. And you're up first, John. Yeah, I had my first humbling of the year in that terrible Ravens performance against the Chiefs. Uh, maybe an overdue market correction, but that was an absolutely horrible pick. Um, was not as close as the 14 points suggested. Uh, had a kick return for a touchdown, and yeah. Chiefs could have scored later. It was just an epic disaster. So, um, But I'm still handily winning my wins uh, by more than I'm losing my losses, uh, in, in addition to be 9-6. and six. So, uh, you know, that's that's uh, encouraging. So I'll, I'll be uh, thinking positive here. Okay. Um, so my picks, uh, which I must say were adjusted by some really tough Westgate lines, I thought that gave me pause. I, I thought I had some teams I wanted, and they, you know, they they went at me hard on the line, so I had to make some adjustments. So uh, Cowboys minus four and a half over the Browns. Uh, Cowboys have underperformed every week so far, but they actually have a good team. They're not great, but they're good. So that's an easy line for me. Um, Jaguars plus three over Bengals, only dog for me this week. Uh, I like the Jags offense here and Bengals just do not know how to win a game. Plus another tie would be a cover for me. So that would work. <laughs> uh, Rams minus 12 and a half over the giants. Again, I hate giving double digits with a non-Super Bowl favorite, but I coasted in that Colts, uh, went over the jets last week and this should be more of the same. Rams will have some nice trickery on offense that will, uh, kind of vex a confused if game defense, I think. Um, Colts minus two and a half over the Bears. I uh, got the courtesy bump thanks to betters who think that the Nick Foles signing uh, was more than a one-year deal with the Devil, which I think it was just a one-year, not a not a multi-year deal <laughs> in spite of last weekend. That was more Falcons than anything. Um, the Bears are three and zero, and they're they're not good. So uh, one of my old sayings is: anytime a team can lose a game and still feel good about themselves, they usually do, and the Bears will. Uh, finally, uh, late later game. Buccaneers minus seven over the Chargers. Um, I'm not 100% sold on Grandpa Brady still, but the Bucks defense is really good, and it's going to overwhelm a kid quarterback uh, with the Chargers. All right, interesting. Uh, so the, I'm I'm faced with a dilemma. Do I pivot to avoid going head to head with John, <laughs> who has who has been uh, dominating me in head to head matchups so far this year? <laughs> the answer is no. I, I have two head to heads against you, and I'm going to stick stick with them. Um, you know. Famous last words here, but I actually feel better about my five games this week than I have the previous three weeks. Hmm. Um, so, and, and you're going to find it hard to believe that I feel good about it when you hear my first one. <laughs> Give me the New York Jets. Um, in the Super Contest, they're a pick whereas they've moved to minus two elsewhere. Uh, so I'm getting a couple of points of value there. 
They're getting Jamison Crowder and right tackle George Fant back, so Darnold mm-hmm. isn't quite as screwed as he was last week. And the Broncos' injuries just keep piling up. They're having the season from hell. Uh, trademark Richard Lewis for you Curb Your Enthusiasm fans out there. Um, the Jets don't want to go winless. They might look at their schedule and see this as their best chance for a W. They should be motivated. I hate betting on Adam Gase, but give me the Jets in a pick em. Um And next one, here's a head-to-head. I really disagree with you on this one. I could hardly believe this line when I first saw it on Monday that the Bears are getting two and a half points at home against the Colts. I know the Bears are lousy for a three and O team, but if you take that three and O away, I think they're a solid enough team. This line says the Colts are like five or five and a half points better on a neutral field. I don't see it. I think these teams are about even. I can't believe I'm getting points with the Bears at home. Maybe I'm jinxing it by being uh, so confident, but this just (laughs) looks too easy to pass up. I'm going with the Bears. Um, For my next pick, the Cardinals Whisperer returns. Uh, I I loved them in weeks one and two, was worried enough to stay away in week three. Now I like them again at Carolina, only favored by three and a half. I thought this line would be like five or six. I do worry a little about the hook at three and a half, but... I think the cards bounce back from a sloppy loss to the Lions here, and they win comfortably enough. Another head-to-head here, another line that kind of surprised me, that the Bengals were minus three at home against Jacksonville. I watched this Cincinnati team closely the last two weeks. Burrow is good already. He's not great, but he's good. And the team is generally competent. This line suggests Cincy and Jacksonville are equals on a neutral field. I think the Bengals are clearly the better of the two teams. Granted, the Jags might get DJ Chark back, which would be a help. Still, I like the Bengals here. I expect them to actually put a win on the board. And I think the line is a point or two too little. Um, And uh, lastly, I wanted to pick the major COVID impacted game. I thought that Pittsburgh... Uh, at minus two and a half at Tennessee was a steal, but uh, the game is is postponed as we discussed. So I'm instead going with the minor COVID impacted game. Uh, The Vikings having been tested and isolated, they're on the road in Houston against an 0-3 Texans team that just got absolutely screwed by the schedule makers. They had to play the Chiefs, Ravens, and Steelers, quite possibly the three best teams in the AFC. They're ready to win one, and the Vikings are a mess. Their defense stinks, and now they've had this COVID distraction to deal with. I love the Texans minus four and a half. And that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening, and thanks again to our guest, Lloyd Danzig. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan, and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling, and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And with that, John. Please take us out. Yeah, I'm going to go with a word of caution this week. Instead of my usual rose-colored glasses, a little bit of that Debbie Downer thing that I try to avoid. But, you know, the weather this past month in North Jersey has been glorious and other parts of the country as well. Uh, By the time we got our heads around the pandemic, if you think back between mid-March and mid-April, you know, the weather had turned to the good in the Northeast and the Midwest. And, you know, that has meant plenty of outdoor recreational opportunities, especially all summer, uh, recently including alfresco dining as well. Uh, It's become clearer than ever before that outdoors is pretty safe for most of what you do. But before we know it, the weather's going to move us indoors, Mm -hmm. and that's going to be with a long winter ahead of that in much of the country that I'm thinking of. It's going to be discouraging, so let's get out ahead of it. Do what you can outside now. Be ready to support each other after that. We're all going to need it. Um, There are going to be fewer games going on also, you know, in a a few weeks uh, once baseball's done and and the NBA obviously be done. Uh, On the gambling side, I'd say once the cold snap hits, 
or even before that maybe, try a live Zoom call with your usual sports bar buddies on football Saturdays and Sundays. It won't be the same, but it would be something. And uh, we got to keep our spirits up uh, with the winter ahead. Uh, with that, until next time, gamble on, everybody. Gamble on, everybody.